Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Stephen McIntyre joins us today from Dublin. He is general partner at Frontline Ventures, a firm that invests in seed companies in Europe and growth stage companies in the United States. Prior to joining Frontline, Stephen was an executive at Twitter and Google, where he led expansion and growth throughout Europe. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, appreciate you being with us. So uh, I know that you spent some time in the States. I'm seeing uh, you attended Cornell and HBS, and um, I, th- I think you're probably an Irish native <laughs> based on your name and your accent. But walk us through your background and, and sort of your path through tech and to VC. Uh, Irish native, all right. Um, I've spent uh, a lot of my career in the US, though. So I've, I've kind of had three careers, really. Started off as an engineer in telecoms industry, then spent majority of my career as an executive at Google and Twitter, and more recently, the last four years in VC. So I was born and raised in Ireland, uh, studied engineering, electrical engineering here. In the 1990s, mid-90s, I I did not even know what venture capital meant after graduating. Uh, Those kind of engineering courses, especially in Europe at the time, were very theoretical, not very connected to business. But I got interested in mobile phones. Went to went to grad school, engineering grad school in in uh, in Cornell, and uh, kind of started specializing in, in mobile technology, which was developing at the time, and then ended up leaving the U.S., going to the U.K. and joining Nokia, which in the late '90s was kind of a superstar. And and uh, I joined them uh, as an engineer just before they took over from Motorola as the biggest mobile phone maker in the world. I mean, they had forty percent market share at one stage. It's kind of amazing to think back and looking at what happened to them. And then uh, inside the company, uh, the engineering part of Nokia really was quite separate from the business side, very different to many tech companies today. And uh, I could see that Nokia was kind of slowly driving off a cliff, but I didn't have the business fluency at the time to kind of understand why, but that got me interested in, in the business side of tech. And I decided to get out of a pure tech job at the time and, uh, and, um, and get out of telecoms as well. So I went back to the States, did an MBA and that led me to Google. And, um, I was kind of in the right place at the right time because Google had just gone public and it was the first, it was the first MBA class that Google hired from. So it was class of 05, Google wow. went public in 04. So it was good timing. And tech was a little bit out of fashion. And it's kind of hard to imagine that. But um, I think Google only hired about six people from my class that year, whereas McKinsey hired 90, right. to give you an idea of, of, of how the career choices were different then. And so I joined in Mountain View and then moved back to Europe, did a variety of sales roles and, and then, uh, well, tech roles first and then sales roles at Google. And then in uh, 
I was there for six years, then joined Twitter when Twitter was really just a, emerging. It was it had grown fast on, on the user side, but it had, it had almost no revenue outside the US when I joined 2011. And I became one of the first international employees and then uh, VP of, of Europe, Middle East and Africa. And I was responsible for setting up and running that business. And then I moved uh, moved down on to, to VC four years ago. Very good. So was your first uh, entree into VC with Frontline? Yeah, it was. It was. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so Frontline Frontline at the time was a B2B seed investor only. Now it's changed and I'll, I'll kind of explain why, but but uh, we've got offices in London and Dublin um, and we had at the time that I joined and, and now more recently actually in San Francisco, we've got a partner, uh, partner in the Bay Area now. And um, today we have a more of a transatlantic strategy. So we've got two parallel funds, this Frontline Seed, which invests early stage in Europe. Uh, although we do tend to help those companies expand to the US, which is always their biggest market. And then the other side, which is part that I run, which is Frontline X. And that's our growth fund. We invest uh, growth stage in the US only or US and Canada. And then we help those companies expand into Europe. So it's it's sort of a parallel transatlantic strategy. And um, the the idea for Frontline X came from my personal experience at Google and Twitter, which is that there was this huge opportunity outside the US for, for great US companies, uh, but the opportunity was sometimes hard to tap and even, and even great companies made avoidable mistakes along the way. And also, crucially, even the best US investors just tend not to focus there. They, they help US companies with other things, uh, but usually not international for a variety of reasons. And so that, that kind of led to the, the idea that uh, we were well-placed in London and Dublin, to, which are the most commonly chosen headquarters locations for US companies going to Europe. Mm. Uh, and because of our in-house operating experience, we were well-placed to, uh, to, to help these companies expand. Yeah, I want to go deeper on sort of this cross-border expansion. Um, but why the stage disparity, right? You're doing uh, growth stage deals uh, in the US and, and seed stage in Europe. It was really a strategic choice based on our strengths and our ability to differentiate ourselves. So we we started like many VC funds do with seed um, and in in the market that we were based in, which was Ireland, the UK. And so that was kind of obvious. The the leap to growth stage in the US was was not at all obvious, Uh, but it was based on those strengths that I mentioned. So uh, I ended up in in Frontline with a kind of a unique set of skills for VC in Europe, which was international expansion of US companies. We had very strong conviction because of that experience that this was a very common problem that was not being resourced correctly either within companies and, and, and wasn't being addressed by investors. So we had strong conviction on that. And, and for the first year that I was working as a seed investor with, with Frontline, I was still being tapped on the shoulders by, by uh, every now and again by US companies coming over wave after wave asking for advice on either you know, who to hire in, in London to run a sales team or how to prioritize markets. What do you, where, where do you go after the, the, the UK or, or whatever else? And um, uh, gradually, we, we started to realize that was, that was our way to tap into the U.S. market. Otherwise, we had no reason to believe that we could. Um, we had something you know, different to add. So it came from there. You know, I, I used to work with a, 
uh, somebody who, who worked at Procter & Gamble as a marketer for many years, and Procter & Gamble always ask themselves when they go into a new market, do we have a right to win uh, before anything? And you know, we wouldn't have had a right to win as seed investors in the US, but because of this niche that we picked, we do. Love it. Love it. Great to see a firm actually, you know, finding a superpower and differentiating because there's a lot out there that, um, you know, do not. Uh, so an associate here at, at Newstack, Nate, actually turned me on to this uh, research report that you all put together. Uh, fascinating report. I, I, it was really interesting. You did research on the expansion of 175 different U.S. companies into Europe. Um, before we get into the piece here, you know, I'd, I'd love to just understand what, what prompted the research. Well, CSO, CEOs tend to procrastinate when it comes to international expansion, and it's because they don't know where to start, really. There are a lot of possible things that they could focus on. And so we just really wanted to demystify the process for CEOs by highlighting very simply five key questions and, and then some of the answers. And then, you know, another reason, so that, that was, I suppose, the first reason why we published this report now. And also we just took advantage of the, f- the few months, initial months of lockdown to do some heavy research that we probably <laughs> wouldn't have got around to otherwise, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Um, and then just going back to my time at Twitter in particular, uh, just a brief story from my early days there. In my very first week, I, I reported to the CRO at the time. And I spent my first few weeks in San Francisco. And, uh, and, and towards the end of the first week, I asked the CRO, look, do we have anything written down on international expansion or Europe in particular? You know, where's the plan? And he looked at me and he said, you're the plan. And, and uh, so that was very exciting at the time, right? So very kind of empowering. You have a, a big job to do and all that. And I ended up sitting in a cafe, I remember, in North Beach on the, on the Sunday at the end of the first week. And I had Excel and a PowerPoint in front of me, and I was trying to put together Twitter's plan for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And there was nothing written down about any of this stuff. <laughs> and there was already so much online, so much content on product development, on scaling sales teams in the US, on everything you can imagine, and nothing on this topic. And so that always stuck in my head as being, this, is, this was a gap that had to be filled at some point. And you know, several years later, we just happened to be the ones to do it. And we wanted some data as well. Like anecdotes are great and we have plenty of them, but putting together a data set of what companies actually did is, is quite hard. And so nobody really gets around to doing it. You know, it's tricky because the decision to globalize, I mean, you're growing these, these fast scaling companies, right? You're taking them from pre-seed to seed to series A to series B. Timing of expansion is always a big question. And it's a tough one that starts at the top, right? It starts with the CEO. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, not all CEOs have a coach in their background like Frontline, right, that has experience doing this. But talk to us a bit about how you work with CEOs and you know, figure out sort of when is the right time to consider expansion. Well, first of all, it's, it's worth looking at, looking at the data since we do have this report now to, to see what actually happens. Then I can tell you a little bit about how we advise CEOs. First of all, of the 175 companies that we looked at, and many of these have gone on to go public, and, and uh, but it's a, a very representative sample of SaaS companies over the last decade. At the the first office in Europe tends to come between Series B and Series C, so yeah, around six to seven years in, and that's that's been a fairly stable uh, pattern over ten years. What has changed is that, of course, 
the average Series B and Series C rounds, the amount of money that these companies have raised by the time they go into Europe for the first time now is is much much bigger bigger than it was ten years ago. Although they're they're burning more money too, so they they're typically better financed. However, while while that is has been a fairly sta- stable pattern, we tend to not talk about the stage, the funding round stage when we talk to a CEO. It's more about the the organization's maturity, and so there are. There are a few questions that we ask. So one, is the U.S. business working? <laughs> like there'll always be fires all over the place. It'll always be a, you know, a bit of a mess in some regards, but is it reasonably stable? Can you repeatedly sell to these customers? Uh, two, are you well enough funded? So we do see companies sometimes trying to expand to Europe after Series A. It's typically not a good idea. It tends to be a toe-in-the-water stuff, and, and they just don't have the resources to invest properly. Interesting. Three, is there some evidence of international demand? Because in the world of SaaS and self-serve, you, without, without even trying, uh, with a decent product, you should be getting some money from outside the, the, the US, uh, especially if you sell to mid-market or SMB. So some evidence of, of, of demand is, is important. And then the last two are softer. And uh, I kind of learned those over time, which was, what does the exec team look like? And how important is this to the CEO personally? So the exec team, while a Series B or Series C company won't have a fully built out exec team, and, and that's not necessary at all, it, this is a fairly big lift. Like it's cross-functional in nature and in international expansion. It affects product, it affects sales, it affects marketing, every function of the company really. And so it is important that there's at least one other C-level exec in the CEO's team who could share the responsibility or take full responsibility here. And if, in, and if a team is still very, very CEO or founder driven, um, and especially if that CEO is extremely product driven and tends to delegate everything else, then that is an indicator that the company is not going to be ready yet. How big a priority it is for the CEO is, is really key because globalizing that company is is more than just hiring a sales leader in London and, and then sort of passing it on to them. Uh, globalizing a company is, is really a, it's not a short-term project. It's a, you know, a decades long um, process. Interesting. Just, you know, quick sidebar. I had a call with uh, one of our founders yesterday. It's a, a seed stage um, company and it's hardware as a service. Right. So it's not just pure SaaS. It's uh, there's a mm-hmm. hardware instantiation, but the, the magic is kind of in the software. Right. Um, but he was approached very recently this week by a huge incumbent in the space that has no technology quite like theirs and has a huge presence in Europe. Right. So they mm-hmm. suggested we'd like to be effectively a VAR, like a value added reseller. You know, yeah. we use your product, yeah. Um, yeah. repackage it, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. we want to be your channel partner and your distribution partner for all things in Europe and um, even some other geographies in Asia. Um, yeah. You know, what are your thoughts on that at the early stages? Yeah. Yeah, you have to balance the short term and long term. So in the short term, uh, there's something very tempting about that because it, it feels like you could tap into uh, some new revenue stream without having to do much work for it. In reality, most businesses, in most businesses, it's sort of VAR type relationships, partner relationships don't tend to work that way. They usually require quite a lot of work to, to, uh, to get the returns that you, you want. And I would say in a priority market, which Europe is likely to be, if it's 
yeah, it's likely to likely to be then. I, I'd be looking, I'd be trying to predict what the business is going to look like in five years' time and work backwards from there. So I can't imagine many large, globally focused US software companies where Europe is not their second largest market at the point of IPO and where Europe isn't 30% of global revenue. If you take that to be true, then sort of handing the keys to Europe to anybody so early in your development feels like a strategic risk. I don't know any of the details here, obviously, but that feels like a a strategic risk. Now, having said that, when I uh, give you uh, an example from Twitter where it worked very well, we, um, Twitter didn't have the scale of Google. And so whereas Google could have its own office in, you know, the Czech Republic and in Hungary, because it was just so big everywhere, Twitter couldn't possibly do that. And so we use partners in two different ways. And actually it was quite effective at times. One, it was where uh, there was a market where uh, being a local player was so important for Saudi Arabia or the Middle East in general, for example, was, was one example, where, where, where being a local player was so important for selling that a, a partner was going to just do a better job than you. And then the second big reason was opportunity cost, where we were focusing on the UK, Germany, France, where we, we were not going to get to South Africa anytime soon. We were not going to get to Eastern Europe anytime soon. And so we, we partnered with players in those places because we just knew that it would take five or more years to get there. And they'd probably never be top 10 markets for us. But I think when you're talking about the UK, Germany, France, maybe the Nordics and Scandinavian countries they should be big markets for most U.S. companies. And so I, I tread carefully before you know, handing them away. You, know, you, you mentioned before that expanding into Europe, it's not just a sales expansion effort, right? It's, you have to globalize the company. And yeah. I'm sure that this is very complex, but is there a way that you can, can you describe what you mean by that? Is there you know, a framework or, or some way to think about what it truly means to globalize and, and expand cross-border? Well, one thing is a, is a mindset shift. So some CEOs do think of Europe, for example, as a short-term project that they have to think about until they hire somebody to sort of run it for them, like a, a VP of EMEA. I think a better way to think about Europe as the first step is thinking of this as being, let's say, a 10-year process of globalizing the company. So taking it from where it is today at C to Series A to all the way, hopefully, success public markets in 10 years' time. And, and then to think about what that company should look like. So for sure, a majority of revenue at that scale should come from outside the US. It's just sort of the nature of where the, uh, where the dollars are in the world. Um, that's probably the easiest way and also the wrong way to think about becoming a globalized co- company. I think a globalized company then has a few more characteristics. So the product is engineered from the ground up to be usable worldwide. So you know you don't expect Germans to use credit cards because they don't use credit cards, they use bank transfer. And so, or you don't expect the same um, uh, low latency networks in every part of the world that you have in the United States or Western Europe. At the executive team at headquarters, I think, um, needs to allocate their mind share in proportion to growth potential, not to proximity. And an awful lot of companies that that, uh, that probably you and I are familiar with uh, pretty much ignore their New York office. Never mind if they're based in San Francisco. Never, never mind you know a London office or 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 a, an office far away. But but the more mature companies, as they get bigger, uh, allocate that mind share and time in a more systematic way 
in proportion to growth opportunity. And then sometimes, uh, you know, I would like to see over time uh, at least one C-level exec based outside the US. It, it completely changes the mindset of an exec team when that's the case. That's not going to be the case before probably a company goes public. Um, and then, and then uh, just having some execs or, or board members who have lived or worked abroad, like all of those things, they sound small, but actually most companies do not make, meet those criteria even after going public. Well, one final thing to uh, say on it is, I think functionally organized com- companies tend, they tend to have bottlenecks at the head of function. So, you know, marketing, the bottleneck is a CMO and that's the CRO and say sales or whatever it is. Cross-functional issues then get resolved by the CEO. The CEO is the only general manager really. And, and since, and that works more or less okay in the US, but an international expansion is a very cross-functional effort. And so an awful lot of issues come up every day that are cross-functional. And if they have to go back to headquarters to be resolved by the CEO, you've got a bit of a problem. But that also raises the point that probably only the CEO is the one who can really deal with some of those issues in the early, in, in the very early days, because every other executive has got a functional bias, whether it's a CRO who ultimately just wants to hit the number, maybe mm-hmm. they don't think about the cost of the location or whatever it is, or a CFO who thinks about tax, but doesn't think about the revenue. Um, the CEO is no matter what way you look at it, uh, has to be at the center of this for the first year anyway. So, so I imagine, you know, not having total buy-in from the CEO is probably uh, a big mistake when doing this expansion, but are there other common pitfalls or mistakes that you've seen companies make or the research suggested, you know, companies are making mistakes when expanding into Europe? Well, in in the report that we did, we found that uh, about half of companies may get their first senior hire wrong. So they end up, Mm. that person ends up leaving within two years. That's a big problem because you know, five or eight time zones away from home, your first senior hire is even more important than it is, you know, in, uh, on your on your doorstep. Uh, that's one. I think not recognizing the size of the opportunity in Europe is is actually the very first mistake, and the the reason why that's important is because. Unless you, unless you sort of correctly dimension the size of the opportunity, you're not going to resource it accordingly. And a lot of things fall from that. So uh, it, what we've seen, I think the median IPO ARR for, uh, for um, SaaS companies in 2019 was, I think, I think it was something like $278 million. Uh, 30%, what we've seen across the board is the benchmark in Europe at the point of IPO is about 30% of global revenue. So that's uh, you know, about 80 million ARR uh, coming from Europe. So Interesting. if at Series B or Series C, you think, okay, in five years time, we want to go public and we're going to have an 80 million business in Europe. How would you resource that business five, you know, five years in advance? Sure. You probably wouldn't just dip your toe in the water. You're like, you'd, you'd go big. And so that's pretty important. There's also this kind of an interesting one, um, which we, we kind of refer to as success amnesia, which is, and I was talking to, I was talking to an executive at uh, Slack and Dropbox, and they spoke about the same thing with different language, which is that when you go to a new market, it's very easy to forget in the early days, what made you successful back home in the early days. Because by the time you get to that new market, 
You, you, you're five years further on. You've built a brand. You've got a community. There's a glow about you. There was a lot of like growth hacker type stuff that you spent years sweating on. And then you go to the new market and you expect sales to just pull it all together. It's like the curse and of knowledge. Yeah, you, absolutely. Have the, you have the same issue with serial entrepreneurs. They forget yeah. what got them there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so actually as a result, marketing is more often a failure point in Europe in the early days than sales is because sales goes over sales, sales uh, will look, you know, more or less like it does in the U S there are adjustments for sure, but more, you know, more or less, but, but the big difference is you probably don't have a brand and you probably don't have a community of advocates. And you, if, if you're not willing to invest to put that work in to get to that point, it's very diff, difficult to apply the same sort of go to market sales model that you would in, in the U S um, so yeah, there there are a few, and then and then actually an, another one which is a pet pet peeve of mine actually, which came out of the research was was Brexit. Like Brexit probably doesn't get very much coverage in the U.S. anymore because just so many other news stories have taken over. But uh, we were really interested in seeing what the impact of Brexit was on U.S. companies going to going to Europe. Uh, I only really had anecdotes to back that up until we had done the research. It turned out there was quite a big drop in expansions of US companies really? into not just the UK, but into Europe after the referendum in 2016. And, and so, so that was one, that was one point, right? But what we decided to do was to check whether that was rational behavior or irrational behavior. We also looked at US companies that were already in Europe. So in the UK and more you know, London, Dublin, Amsterdam tend to be the most common initial locations. We looked at US companies that were already there and we saw that they grew like crazy. With, with almost no um, change after the referendum. And so what that told us was when you were a CEO or an exec in San Francisco or Chicago or New York reading Brexit headlines from far away, you were kind of spooked. And so you thought, oh, I'm not sure what's going on over there, but it seems kind of crazy. Let's just delay. Whereas when you were already there, you realize actually the situation on the ground hasn't changed at all. There's a little bit of political uncertainty, but, but actually the customers are still buying exactly as they did before. We're hiring exactly as we, we, we did before. Everything is, is you know, full, uh, full steam ahead. And so what that tells me is that companies were unnecessarily spooked. Sure, there was a little bit of additional uh, uh, political risk, but the companies that are already in Europe have shown that the, the opportunity is still there just like just like it always was. Wow. Early mover advantage for sure. Um, yeah. Well, and you, you, you end up with a little bit of a vacuum being created then where local copycat competitors can kind of come in where, where there would have been a U.S. company. Maybe they're, they're coming a little bit later now as a result. And that could be accentuated by, by COVID. How, Stephen, how do you see the challenges of growing a B2B software company across Europe you know, differ from, from that of growing one in the States? The U.S. market is the most competitive and most demanding market in the world. It's also, in some ways, the most homogenous of the really large markets. Uh, so I think the I think about the the problems uh, or the challenges kind of in two buckets. There's there's extrinsic challenges, sort of market related ones, and then there's intrinsic ones, which are more company characteristics. And so I think when U.S. companies are expanding into Europe, their biggest problems are actually intrinsic. They they end up um, 
with self-inflicted wounds. So the extrinsic ones are things like market fra- fra- fragmentation. All of the markets are smaller than the US. Uh, you know, if you have a sales team of 50 people in the US, that will translate to probably a sales team of 10 in the UK, which is which is okay. That's still scale. When you go to Germany, Germany might your German team might be five people. When you start getting down to any team smaller than, you know, three or four, that's really subscale. And so uh, you, you'll just get lower productivity as a result of that. Language is the obvious sort of difficult extrinsic one. Sure. Um, and then things like buying preferences can sometimes be a little bit different, but I, I think that's overblown. You know, certain software is sold through channels, let's say in Germany, but but actually in the UK, honestly, you can sell in the same way that you do in the US. Um, you know, I think people make, make too much of the differences sometimes in buying. The intrinsic challenges though, are actually the self-inflicted ones um, are are probably worse, which is that most U.S. companies don't have good talent networks in in Europe, and so the whole process of hiring and using referral networks is harder to kickstart. That functional organization problem, not having a tiebreaker, you know, the GM who's the CEO at HQ, not having not having a, a sort of a GM who's who's truly a tiebreaker rather than just a GM in title just leads to problems, the time zone issue, you know, all those kinds of things. And I say, I say they're intrinsic because I think they, companies can overcome them if they have the will, but, uh, but they often don't. And, and often the sort of executives in the U S just sort of don't dedicate enough time to, to understanding those international uh, markets. And so as a result, problems arise that probably don't need to be problems. It's interesting because, you know, in the States here, we actually see cultural divides from the Midwest versus the South versus New England. You know, Texas is kind of its own, and then you, you've got the West. Um, but I imagine the disparity is is even broader, right? Across these countries, different languages, different cultures. Um, that's got to create some challenges in, I don't know, building a large effective sales force and, and getting the momentum uh, that you're looking for in a fast-growing tech company. Yeah. I mean, well, I'd say yes and no, because I think, I think culture is sometimes used as an excuse when, when people can't come up with anything more specific. And so, uh, <laughs> I like that. uh, you know, I think it's easy to say, oh yeah, sure. Of course, you know, Europe's got 50 countries and, and nearly as many languages, very diverse for sure. But you're not actually trying to sell to absolutely everybody across all of Europe. You're trying to sell to B2B software, you're probably selling to reasonably you know, tech savvy people who've, who've bought SaaS software before, at least initially for the first several years. And so first of all, you may well get away with selling even in English for the first few years. That, that's even a change from 10 or 15 years ago. And, and if, if you start selling in the UK first, selling into the Scandinavian markets who all speak perfect fluent English as a second language, Netherlands as well, you've got fairly big markets straight away. You can just sell to in English. An awful lot of Ger- uh, German buyers these days sell English uh, or uh, can, can, can buy through English. And then you have across all of Europe, you have this kind of pan-European segment of savvy tech savvy, uh, sort of tech savvy English speaking buyers from Israel to Spain to Denmark to Norway, who, who can buy in actually very similar ways to, to the US. So I think eventually, if you want to be a truly blockbuster, big, enormous business, uh, you know, many years down the line, multi-billion dollars in revenue, then you start to to really need to tackle 
the cultural problems that come with uh, you know, becoming big in every single country in Europe. But for the first few years, you can actually get a, you, can, you can actually get away with quite a lot with a, um, just smaller adjustments to the to the US uh, to the US model. That's, that's great insight. You know, something else I've been considering. So we have a portfolio company, uh, an immigrant from Bulgaria, and his last company was very successful. He's built out a whole engineering center right in in Europe. And um, I'm seeing this more and more, whether it be Europe or, you know, other other regions, but um, more of, you know, engineering expansion uh, for U.S. Mm. companies uh, as opposed to just sales, you know, is how do you think about that uh, and the timing of that? And if that's the right decision, you know, for companies that you're working with? Well, if, if you've spotted that trend, you're you're uh, uh, you're bang on. It's it's. Um that is something that's it came out of our, our research recently and it surprised me. So I I had some inkling that because of the talent bottleneck in the Bay Area, especially recently, that uh, I kind of knew companies were already opening up engineering offices in other places in the US or Canada or elsewhere. And, and I thought that was probably happening in Europe too. It turns out it's much more prevalent than um, than I suspected. Uh, something like 40% of expansions over the last 10 years are product and engineering led just meaning that they're the they're the majority of the of the initial hires when, uh, when the first office gets to scale and uh, and that is that's just gonna rise um, and you know for that because of the talent shortage reason but I think also the impacts of covid uh, the the remote working impacts is likely to be long lasting I think if the, the more comfortable, companies become with distributed workers, the more they're likely to uh, you know, figure out their internal systems for having engineers and product managers and far-flung locations. And I think that will, that will end up uh, resulting in more, more of those kind of expansions into Europe. H- however, the, the majority of expansions is still sales and customer-led. Uh, and um, and, and even for the product and engineering expansions, while they may have been the first functions to go, uh, sales and sales and customer success and support usually aren't that far behind. So for for any bigger company, they'll always end up with a sales presence just because the market's too big to to not have that. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta. And there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. 
What are the most common countries for uh, these, you know, product-led and engineering uh, expansion? Well, across across the, the the 175 companies that we looked at, the most common initial office locations were London, number one, Dublin, number two, Amsterdam, number three, and then after that, it was a, a sort of a smattering of other uh, of other cities and. You might be surprised at that. I think don't think anyone's surprised that London would be number one, but Dublin and Amsterdam are clearly not the number two and number three cities in terms of size or anything else in, in Europe. But uh, uh, places like Berlin or Paris don't have some of the advantages that uh, that those other three cities have when it comes to you know, predominantly English-speaking um, uh, environment. Uh, there, there are some employment law challenges in places like France uh, that U.S. companies usually don't want to have to deal with. So th- there are not a lot of reasons why those other three places, London, Dublin, and Amsterdam, become particularly kind of successful. If you were only hiring engineers, I think Berlin would shoot shoot up your uh, priority list. If you look at the, the the sort of the biggest indigenous tech centers in Europe. It's, it's London, Berlin, and Paris by a lot of measures in terms of number of developers, VC dollars into local companies, number of unicorns, things like that. The reason why Berlin doesn't tend to do as well, and Paris certainly not, for US companies moving over is, is just all of these other things. Trying to, trying to hire um, senior sales leadership that has experience running large companies, it's, it's definitely a lot harder in Berlin than it is in, in some of the other places. And then you have some employment law issues as well. It's just, you know, com- complicate things, but engineering only, and they, they could be great places. Steven, you mentioned uh, remote work and, and COVID and, you know, the, the transition there. Um, I was fortunate. I was catching up with a, a friend of mine, Seth the Hart. He's an expat in Amsterdam and uh, former head of growth at Framer and, you know, works with a number mm. of large uh, venture firms. But um, I mentioned, you know, you and I were going to chat and he gave me some thoughts and some questions, but one of his questions was, you know, how do you see the future of and the potential for building fully functioning sales forces in a remote environment, you know, from the ground up? Because I think, you know, most of his experiences, you know, you get a lot of teams together and there's a lot of collaboration and um, that helps in sort of onboarding and training and, and building the culture of of selling. Um, so anyway, that was one of the questions that he brought up that I, I figured I'd I'd ask you now. Yeah. Inside sales teams have tended to develop in hub offices, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 um, in the U S it could be in somewhere like Denver. If it's not in one of the, the, you know, the big, the big tech locations in Europe tends to be in places like Dublin or Amsterdam and, uh, and then enterprise sales, in Europe, usually it is done out of field offices, either in a London office, if that's not the, the number one office, or in you know Hamburg or Madrid or Paris or wherever. I think with COVID, although it's probably too soon to tell for sure, there is likely to be a, a kind of merging of the best of both of those sales models where as long as customers become more willing to buy uh, remotely and it seems inevitable for all sorts of reasons that that, that would be the case, then uh, there will develop some sort of a um, kind of remote enterprise sales model. 
where you, you are selling remotely, but you're probably not just hiring grads straight out of college who've never done sales before to sell remotely. You're, you're probably hiring experienced enterprise salespeople, but they're just not necessarily getting on a, a plane for, for every deal. And uh, they still have to work from somewhere though. So the kind of, and they have to be onboarded and trained and motivated and all that kind of thing. So I'm not sure if I have an answer to that, uh, the second part of that question yet, but I think hub offices will remain important for the next few years. And, uh, and there are a few reasons for that. One of which is maybe unique to Europe as opposed to the US, which is just the tax issue. Uh, if you if you really tried to hire salespeople in far flung locations all around Europe without ever having local entities in place, you you immediately have all sorts of sort of issues. They, these people need to be employed by a local entity, and then you need to pay tax somewhere. Uh, and I think most growth stage U.S. companies just don't want to deal with the headaches of figuring that out first. <laughs> so for the next few years. I think you may have people working from home partly, but they'll be in the UK or they'll be in Ireland or they'll be in the Netherlands initially. Do you think net net, you know, COVID is a tailwind or a headwind for expansion into Europe for US companies? Uh, it's yeah, it's gotta be a bit of a headwind, really. You know, you just for, first of all, uh Companies that previously had international expansion top of their agenda have just had to delay it because they're in either cash preservation mode or they're they're in some sort of triage situation. So I would expect a lot of uh, there's probably a, a bit of a, a backlog now of international expansions that would have happened earlier in 2020 that will just happen in Q4 or early early next year. Uh, but I think anything that adds all of this additional complexity into any business. It's got to be considered a bit a bit of a headwind, and, and and the thought that there you know there there will be some sort of a global recession, um, it's it's got to be a headwind. Where where I think once we get past say twenty 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 one, where where it could end up being more of a tailwind is if you move to this a greater acceptance of remote sales. Yep, that's just that's just sort of good for everybody. I mean, it's it's <laughs> the economics of it are so much better. It gives you so much more flexibility in terms of the way that you expand internationally. You could imagine partially running European businesses um, without having to invest so many resources. So I think there are all sorts of tailwinds once we get out beyond this initial sort of painful period. But yeah, the next year is probably going to be tough. Yeah, it's interesting. We had Tom Tungus on the program early in the pandemic, and we were talking about this enterprise sales uh, remote model. And he said, yeah, he was working with a company where the, the, the highest bar for anything sold remote over Zoom was like 5,000, right? 5,000 MR or something. And then somebody got to 10 and within a week, you know, a whole bunch of people were at 10 and then somebody did a hundred thousand dollar deal. And then as soon as the bar was up there, then other people realized, you know, they could, they could close hundred thousand dollar deals. And yeah. so, um, it's more of like a mental barrier than a realistic one. It is. It can be a mental barrier within companies, and then and then it can be a real barrier when you get to the customer side. Uh, um, but but once they overcome that barrier too, then then you know all, all bets are off, and you have a lot more flexibility. I remember even you know, ten years ago or more when I w- was at Google, the mid market sales team, which was uh, 
entirely inside sales led was the most profitable sales team at Google. Uh, it was doing million dollar deals 10 years ago, direct response advertising to, you know, tech savvy Israeli advertisers and stuff like that. Guys who never wanted to be met to by a salesperson to have lunch. <laughs> the, the worst thing they could imagine in their lives was having lunch with a salesperson. All they wanted to do was talk to somebody on the other side of the, of the phone line. It was, we, they weren't video conference calls, um, who could answer their technical questions, who could move fast on an implementation once they had made a decision. They were great customers to have. The economics were fantastic, and it was win-win on both sides. Just it's taken time for all customers to kind of to, to get to that level of savviness. But uh, I think we'll get there. Stephen, what do you know you need to get better at? Well, when I was an, an operator, I was always surrounded by people all the time, and and my my job was leading people. I'm I'm a, I'm a, I would say I'm a mild introvert by by nature, and so when I was surrounded by people all the time, and my job was with people, that sort of mild introversion it was it was a nice sort of compliment. Uh, it was a, a sort of balanced out. I found VC is is more of an individual contributor type job, even though it's very externally focused. It's an individual contributor type job, and and so I think sometimes. Um, I'll have a tendency to to do things myself when I should be bringing others in. And that happened very naturally in the operating world. And it doesn't happen so naturally in the VC world. So I kind of have to push myself to crowdsource sometimes. That's interesting. Uh, Stephen, what resource have you found most valuable since beginning your venture career? In the first, in the first couple of years, and even before I made the move, uh, it was probably the same resources as an awful lot of people like Brad Feld and Fred Wilson were just two of the, the clearest communicators for people coming into VC from the outside in that they, they spoke without jargon and with a lot of sort of common sense. Uh, these, these days, I suppose I'll always read anything by Bill Gurley. I, I just, I just find he doesn't write all that much anymore, but I find him fascinating. I still think Ben Thompson is kind of the benchmark uh, in terms of st- in terms of strategy at Stratechery. So it's not it, there's no different to sources that other people use. And then Twitter is is um, I, I've been an active Twitter user for for uh, for a long time, and that's still my source. Although uh, VC Twitter at times can become um, you know a little bit self obsessed, and so <laughs> I I actually need a little bit of a break sometimes uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> from VC Twitter. But other, but otherwise, still Twitter is is my primary source really. Any final thoughts or advice for founders, you know, that are considering cross-border expansion? Don't delegate it. It's actually your job. It's not the VP of sales job. It's not the CFO's job. It's not the more experienced COO who you recently hired from a big company's job. Like, it's your job. And if you want to truly fulfill the potential of your company, you've got to make it a global company. And that starts with you. Very good. And finally, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Twitter, Stephen <laughs> P. Mack. Yeah. Uh, and our, our website is frontline.vc. So you can you can download the report, the Global Ambition Report that we published there. You can check out the team and we have some other resources. But uh, yeah, Twitter and, uh, and Frontline VC are the best well, ways. When you're not taking a break from Twitter, you can find him on Twitter. The man is uh, Stephen McIntyre. The, the report is great. I'm really glad that we you know, found a way to link up and, and get you featured here on the show. Everyone in the audience, I would encourage you to, to read the report. We'll link to it in the show notes. But Stephen, this was a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Nick. 
That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.